I often say that the assisted reproductive technology industry is the largest scale human experiment that's just unfolding before our very eyes. And it has, in my mind, no guardrails, no red flags, no stop, wait, we shouldn't do this. And, you know, they're pushing CRISPR, gene editing technology now. So we can go in and chop out genes and knock out the ones that we don't want. And, you know, and, and this was going to take designer babies to a whole nother level when we're starting to build human beings from the, you know, from the tools, the, from the ground up. You must be some kind of therapist. I am some kind of therapist, and I'm about to take you on a journey through the inner wilderness. I've invited brilliant guests from all walks of life to join me as we investigate, illuminate, and inspire transformation in ourselves, intimate relationships, and the social ecosystems we are constellated in. What you are about to hear may surprise you, so hang on to your earbuds for a hefty dose of sanity in a chaotic world. I am Stephanie Wynn, a licensed marriage and family therapist, branching out and building bridges between psychology and everything else under the sun. It's my honor to have you along for the ride. Let's get started. Before we begin today's episode, I have a couple of exciting announcements I don't want you to miss out on. Number one, the film I am proud to be a part of, Affirmation Generation, is now available. This film does an incredible job of exposing the gender crisis, and we want it to reach therapists, doctors, parents, teachers, politicians, and anyone in a position to care. You can stream our early access edition of this film online anytime, as well as watch the trailer, learn more, or donate to the film at affirmationgenerationmovie.com. Number two, I've started a new private online community for listeners of this podcast. You can find it at somekindoftherapist.locals.com. This new offering fulfills several needs. Over the past year, my reach has grown exponentially, and while it delights me to know that my podcast is now in the top 2.5% globally, the matching rise in the amount of emails and DMs I receive has been overwhelming. It's simply too much for one person to handle, and while I care about my listeners, staring at a screen typing words at them for free feeds neither my stomach nor my soul. I had to create some kind of filter to make my engagement feel sustainable and nourishing to me. And fortunately, this is exactly what Locals was designed to do for independent content creators like myself. When you join my Locals community as a supporting member for $8 a month, you get to submit questions that I will answer in members-only Q&A live streams. I'm also considering offering behind-the-scenes early access to new podcasts as they're being recorded. Plus, of course, you get to meet light-minded people who share your interests in an online environment that's free of ads, bullies, and trolls. With Locals, you also get to choose how much you reveal about yourself on your profile so you can be undercover or out in the open. And you get to select whether your posts in my community are visible to anyone who drops by or only to other committed members. If you'd like to support me at a higher level, you can become a premium member for $24 a month, which allows you to privately message me, and I will prioritize responding to premium members' direct messages. I think this is a great solution that is designed to meet everyone's needs. Although we are just getting started and this community is currently small and new, we've already got some great people on board, including thoughtful therapists, concerned parents, and free-thinking, politically homeless people. Please come along and check out my growing community at somekindoftherapist.locals.com. You can get your first month free with promo code GRANDFATHER. 
Make the most of your trial membership by asking a question in the latest Q&A thread, and I will provide a live streamed answer you can join me for or watch later. What have you got to lose? All right, now on to today's episode. Today, my guest is Jennifer Lal. You might be familiar with her as a filmmaker or the founder of the Center for Bioethics and Culture. Um, she's done a lot of work with Callie Fell from the Center for Bioethics and Culture, who interviewed me previously on her podcast, Venus Rising. And you can expect an episode of Callie on this podcast coming soon. Um, Jennifer is a former pediatric critical care nurse who has done a lot of work in the field of medical ethics, specifically with regard to reproductive technology. There are so many questions that I have for her today, so many directions this conversation could go. So I'm really excited to pick Jennifer's brain. Jennifer, welcome. Thank you, Stephanie. It's great to be with you. All right. So I was going over with you before we started recording your films, and I didn't realize you'd actually made 10 of them. <laughs> could you yeah. do us a favor um, for those who um, might have heard of some of these films or might not have heard of them and just um, sort of go over what the films you've made are? Most of the films have been in the assisted reproductive technology space. So we made two films on egg donation, donation in quotes. So we made exploitation and we made our first short, which was called Maggie's Story, uh, the story of a woman up in the Seattle area who sold her eggs 10 times. We made two films on surrogacy, big fertility and breeders, a subclass of women. We made Anonymous Father's Day, which is sort of a deep dive documentary into now grown up people who are here because of anonymous sperm donation. Um, and we've made two films in the transgender space, Transmission, What's the Rush to Reassign Gender? And most recently, we just released the Detransition Diaries, Saving Our Sisters. So that's sort of the, the space that we've been making films in for the last you know, 15 years. So many great resources. So if people want to watch any of your films, they can check out your YouTube channel, the Center for Bioethics and Culture Network on YouTube. Correct. Yes. Okay. And most of the films are in many, many different languages. I mean, oh, they're that's Spanish, wonderful. Italian, Japanese, you know, German. We're working on that right now with Affirmation Generation. We just got the transcript in English and we have some volunteers uh, who are eager to help us translate uh, subtitles in different languages. So that's that's wonderful. wonderful. Um, so I want to sort of brace our listeners. First of all, if, if you've heard this podcast before, you know it's probably not appropriate for children. Um, and, <laughs> and it can evoke um, deep emotions. And so with that in mind, I want to introduce some of the, the lens with which I'm approaching this topic. Um, first of all, I'm approaching it with curiosity and awe. Um, because I don't know very much about this topic. I am very interested in medical ethics, and obviously um, I specialize more in the sort of transgender-related medical ethics. Um, but I'm also approaching this with the sense that, that, you know, we can't really approach these topics without some kind of human moral compass. And I'm a big fan of the work of Jonathan Haidt, um, specifically his moral foundations theory, which you can read about in his book, The Righteous Mind, which is in my bookshop. I'll also include it in the show notes below. And um, Haidt talks about sort of the moral palette, that we all have these moral instincts that are sort of like tastes or flavors of morality. And he offers wonderful tools for 
helping find common ground with people we might disagree with over ethical issues, um, using this concept of the moral moral palette. It's not that people, it's not that other people are immoral, it's that they're differently moral. And he's done some great research into um, sort of the moral palettes of liberals and conservatives, right? So, you know, that liberals tend to favor the care versus harm foundation of morality quite a lot, whereas um, conservatives have um, actually a more uh, kind of broadly a diverse moral palette that that balances things like the care versus harm and fairness or equality pa- palettes with um, things like loyalty and sanctity. And I really want to talk about sanctity today because when I'm paying attention to these conversations uh, that people like Jennifer Lal are having about medical ethics and you know getting into transhumanism or the fertility industry, um, on some deep level, we, if a lot of us feel, um, if, if we tune into it, like a, a disgust response and, and I would call that a moral disgust response. That's an indicator that our sense of sanctity is being violated. And if you're like me and come from a background where for most of your life, you thought of yourself as quite liberal or progressive until you kind of recently learned more about some things that call all of that into um, question with regard to how liberals and conservatives are divided over current issues. If you're like me um, and come from that background, then maybe sanctity hasn't exactly been a central value in your life. Whereas if you come from, let's say, a conservative Christian background, then the concept of sanctity might be something that has been a big emphasis in your um, upbringing or your community. So I want to sort of um, preface this whole conversation by saying that I think the moral instinct um, for sanctity is important in these conversations. And that if you're looking for a way to kind of put your finger on what feels instinctively wrong to me about the sorts of topics that people like Jennifer Law are here to educate us about, um, I think that sanctity is um is a, a key part of the equation here and that we can't write it off and that there is a real cost to something in our, our humanity when we disregard that impulse. The other thing I want to say to preface this conversation is that I am going to be speculating. I'm going to be allowing myself to free associate, to theorize, hypothesize, and I'm not committed to most of what I will say here today. I'm I'm not sure that I'm going to hold these same views a year from now. And nothing I say is an indicator of what Jennifer believes because she is a separate person. She's my guest. Um, but I think that with um, the direction that things seem to be heading with some of these medical technologies that we're here to discuss, um, for me, it's important to allow myself to sort of theorize about what could be happening. That doesn't mean that I have evidence. It doesn't mean I know I'm correct. And um, so please don't hold me to it. <laughs> That's what I ask of my <laughs> listeners. So I want to say all of that up front before we dive in, because I know that Jennifer and I are going to get in some juicy and trippy and disturbing territory today. <laughs> Jennifer, do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, you know, a couple things. I mean, I always, I haven't really thought so much about the word sanctity. I often use the word dignity. And, and maybe those are similar. Um, uh, and, you know, to me, there's, there's sort of universal things, you know, you talk about, um, you know, these moral intuitions, 
you know, I would think across all time, all space, all culture, you know, there would be universal agreement on things that we would never do to another human person um, because of their dignity. Like we would never torture small children for entertainment. You know, that's an extreme kind of example, but it's something that you kind of think, isn't that a universal thing that everybody would agree to that that would be morally wrong, um, robbing that person of their dignity, their sanctity. Um, and then I guess one other thing I want to say, just sort of framing it, and it was one of the thing, one of the books I had to read when I was in graduate school. And my graduate program, uh, my graduate degree is in bioethics, so it's a it's a heavy philosophical, ethical theory kind of a, a training. So you have to read all kinds of ethical theories because they're, they're, you know there's all kinds of ways that we decide what is the good and how do we know it, you know, kind of Aristotle and Plato kind of questions. Um, and one of the books that I had to read in graduate school was, um, was um, put out by a couple of academics at Georgetown. It's called, their last names are Beecham and Childress. We used to call it the Georgetown mantra. Um, and, you know, they had their ethical theory, which was four pillars, justice, autonomy, benevolence, beneficence and maleficence. Justice is, you know, doing things, your your ethics is framed by what is just. You know, autonomy, your ethics is framed around the, the fact that we are all autonomous human beings and we get to decide, you know, what we want done to us or not done to us. Uh, beneficence, do good. Um, and maleficence, non-maleficence, do no harm, you know, sort of hip Hippocrates. And I guess the, the problem that we have in today's culture, society, is that we don't have any shared meaning to what is just, you know, what is good, what is beneficial, what is doing harm, you know. So in the trans debate, for example, you know, one side says we're harming people if we don't affirm them, you know, and the other side says, no, 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 we're harming them if we do affirm them. <laughs> Um, and, and what does autonomy look like when you're dealing in largely in the case of pediatrics, children, you know, because children are not, you know, necessarily autonomous because they're, they're children. Um, so you have, so that's just, I guess, some just things for us to launch off that help me when I'm thinking about what is the good, how do I know that it's good, and what does this mean to the dignity of the person, the individual? Yeah, well said. And, and I'll even sort of push back a little bit on autonomy. I'm curious if you've been um, following the work of Mary Harrington lately. Yes. Right. Yes. So she talks about um, the feminist. I'm not sure if I'm getting these terms exactly right, but it's something like the feminism of freedom versus the feminism of care. And I've never heard anyone put it that way until recently, but it makes you think, you know, when I listen to all these interviews that I've been, I've been listening to with Mary Harrington, I've been thinking like, yeah, who, who convinced us as women that our primary value was around autonomy? Not that our freedom isn't important. Of course it's important. I value my freedom. I'm not saying I, I want to be oppressed, but who convinced us and who's, whose idea was it? That, that that should be our primary guiding value when actually so much of what it is to be a woman is to be a caregiver, to be a source of love and nurturance and support for dependence. Like how how did love get um, 
I don't know, sent like down lower on our on our hierarchy of values. Um, so I just think it's interesting when I hear that there is any moral framework that says autonomy is, you know, up here in our top five values and something like love or care or attachment isn't, right? And and maybe that sort of leads into um, one of your areas of expertise, right? So which is surrogacy. Um, so as someone who knows very little about surrogacy, but I've been starting to follow these conversations, one of the most striking um, concerns about surrogacy that people like yourself are raising is what it does to the attachment bond between the mother and infant. Now, attachment is something that you know therapists do study. Uh, we, we understand that mother-infant bond, it plays such a crucial role in uh, laying a foundation for the mental health of the individual throughout their life. And, um, you know, you, you've been one of many people to point out that, like, there's a way that surrogacy has been sort of marketed to us as a culture. Like, it's an act of care and generosity and selflessness to help infertile couples or same-sex couples um, have babies. But what about that um, bond of care and nurturance that we evolved, not even just as human beings, but as mammals over eons um, to, to form such a primary aspect of who we are? And I would say it's more pronounced in, in humans, actually, because of that, you know, what they call the fourth trimester, because of how mm -hmm. infants are more dependent, human infants are more dependent on their mothers and for longer than almost any other species because of our, our brain size. Um, so I'm wondering if we can sort of start with that, with um, you could lead with how you became interested in the subject of surrogacy or just dive right into the middle of whatever you have to say about it. Yeah, yeah um, I'll just dive right into surrogacy. Um, you know, I you introduced me as a former pediatric nurse, and I I'm like you. I know how important you know mother child maternal child bonding is, and in any other setting in the hospital, the clinical you know interface with your physician, your OBGYN, your pediatrician, everybody knows that that's important. And you know when you are dealing in the hospital, as I was for so many years with sick children that have to be you know separated from their mother. Um, you know, because they're hospitalized, we still do everything possible to, you know, you know, hospitals have very lenient visitation roles for mothers and fathers, um, because we know how important it is for that child and that mother to be together. Um, you know, you talked about mammals, you know, we have a, a dog and we had to wait by law, by California law, we had to wait eight weeks before we could take our newborn puppy home because it's seen as animal cruelty. It's seen as inhumane treatment. And the laws in California are pretty strict. And you can separate a newborn puppy from its mother in the case of the mother died giving birth or the mother is, is missing, you know, lost. You know, there are, there are, you know, exceptions, but the rule is that, you know, even little animals have to stay with their, their mother um, for a period of time. And, you know, I just started doing a lot of research and people, people contact me when I, when any of the films I've made, whether it be women who sold their eggs or people who are here because of surrogacy or egg donation or sperm donation, they come to me and they come to me with my, with their stories, their personal stories uh, of pain and heartache and, you know, feeling exploited. But most people don't realize that a surrogate pregnancy is much riskier 
um, health-wise than the woman's own natural pregnancy. So if a woman is pregnant with her own children, yes, we know that pregnancy still has complications. We know that in the United States, our maternal um, morbidity and mortality rates, you know, women who are pregnant or who are sick, women who are pregnant that die are horrible for such a developed wealthy country as the United States is. But we also know now through research, Callie Fell and I did research, other people have done research, that a woman pregnant with a surrogate pregnancy is much higher risk. So we've doubled down on that. And, you know, the commerce, you know, these, I, I have, I read contracts, these women sign legal contracts. Um, they're paid money, they're paid handsomely, you know, large sum, sums of money. And it's exploitative. Uh, because, you know, you never see a rich Hollywood celebrity who's offered to be a surrogate for a low-income woman who can't conceive. You know, the, the, the power structures and the economic dynamics are, are reversed. So I often say that there's something for everybody to dislike about the practice of surrogacy, whether it be the commodification of women and children, whether it be the risk, you know, and, and if a mother's in a high-risk pregnancy, that means the baby's in a high-risk situation too, um, or just the exploitative nature of women contractually being bound to do things that they otherwise wouldn't choose to do. And of course, it makes sense when you say that the surrogacy, um, a pregnancy with a donated egg is going to be higher risk than a pregnancy with a woman's own natural egg because the body rejects things that are foreign, right? And um, so when you talk about women being, let's say, pressured or coerced into doing things as part of these surrogacy contracts, could you give some examples of some of the more maybe disturbing or alarming things that you've heard trends people might not be aware are happening? Well, I, you know, being in California, which is a very, very um, friendly, surrogate friendly state, uh, you know, I call California the reproductive tourist capital of the world. Um, you know, I had a whistleblower who worked for a big agency in, in San Diego contact me, and she was over the VIP clients for the agency, and the VIP clients were the people that come from China. Most people don't realize that lots of countries all around the world prohibit surrogacy, many countries in, in Europe, um, but China in particular, you cannot buy and sell eggs or rent wombs in China, so they come, the Chinese come here. And she was pretty much undone because the Chinese, because they had so much wealth, they would oftentimes get, you know, two or three women pregnant as surrogates. And then once the pregnancies were confirmed and then the sonograms, ultrasounds were done that let them know if it was boys, girls, twins, whatever, they would then ask two of the surrogates to terminate the pregnancy, um, which is, you know, very traumatic to women who think that they're going into this one to help, you know, help somebody have a baby, you know, and, and they're also expecting to get you know, paid. Well, they're not paid because they don't, they don't carry the pregnancy to term. So, you know, the, the way the contracts are usually structured is this payment comes throughout the nine month pregnancy. And at the very end, when the baby's born and the child is surrendered, they get the final, the final payment. Um, You know, we had two surrogates in California that signed contracts saying that they would, they would reduce the pregnancy down if ever asked or terminate the pregnancy. Both of these surrogates ended up being pregnant with triplets and both of the, we call them IPs, intended parents, the people who'd hired the surrogates. You know, both of these couples asked the surrogates to reduce down the pregnancy. One wanted the pregnancy reduced down to a singleton, so one baby, so terminate two babies. And the other couple wanted the surrogate to reduce down to twins. Even though they'd signed contracts 
when faced with that decision, they they morally couldn't do it. Um, the reason that they couldn't was because there was nothing wrong with the babies. The babies were all healthy. It was just a matter of we don't want three or we don't want, you know, two. Um, so the surrogates had to scramble, get pro bono attorneys to help represent them um, because most surrogates don't have the resources to hire a lawyer when when they're in breach of their contract that they signed. So those are just kind of examples of things that my state, um, most of the third world countries have prohibited surrogacy, closed their borders, you know, stopped a lot of this from happening because they did see women that were really impoverished um, that were, you know, highly exploitative. You know, in the olden days before, you know, the market shut down in India, you know, these women literally had to go and stay in sort of a, a compound with other surrogates for the nine months of their pregnancy. So they had to leave their family. They had to leave their own children. Many of these women are illiterate. They have no idea what the contract says that they're, you know, that they're signing up for, you know, they don't even know how to write. They have to, you know, sign their contract with a, a thumbprint. Um, so, you know, it's much more exploitative when you look outside in, in truly impoverished countries. And we see that in Ukraine right now. I mean, what happened during war and during COVID lockdowns, you know, we had all these babies that were stranded that couldn't be picked up you know, because people couldn't travel and, 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 you know, because either the COVID vaccination, I mean, the COVID uh, travel bans or because of war. Um, so it's just, it's very exploitative. Yeah. When you talk about a woman being asked to abort a pregnancy or reduce, so just to clarify, when you say reduce down, you mean a woman is pregnant with twins or triplets and, do we, I'm sorry, I'm coming from a place of ignorance. We have the technology to essentially abort one or two fetuses yes, uh -huh. and keep the other alive yeah. without without endangering it. I find that. Well, I wouldn't say it's, it's without danger or risk. I mean, that would be, you know, I couldn't say that with a straight face, right. but yeah, they, they can, you know, they can visualize on ultrasound, you know, the, the, the different heartbeats and then they just, you know, typically will inject the one heartbeat or the two, whatever ones are reducing, you know, with a lethal dose of, you know, it's potassium chloride, you know, to stop the heartbeat. And, and then, you know, the woman could just miscarry that baby or they could go in and, and remove that baby. But, um, but yeah, we have the technology to do that. And it's, you know, it's a procedure that's done often. And, and I also, I also want to make the case, cause I don't want your listeners thinking, well, but my friend was a surrogate and none of this ever happened. Or, you know, you know, why can't a sister help her sister and have a baby for her and all that? And I, and I say things like, well, for one, the baby doesn't care. The baby has attached to whoever they grew, whoever's, you know, womb they grow, grew in. You know, we know maternal child bonding is real. So whether your sister or your friend or whoever's helping you, um, the risks are still there. You know, you are still asking your friend or your sister, you know, to risk her health and the health of your future child. Um, so, so there's a lot of people that think, well, as long as, you know, friends are helping friends and sisters are helping sisters. And I have a book that, um, you know, my colleagues and I uh, put out called Broken Bonds, Surrogate Mothers Speak Out. And several of the stories in there are those kind of people that wore surrogates for friends or family members. And it went terribly wrong um, because there's jealousy, there's competition, um, you know, all this, you know, 
one, one of the women in our film breeders, a subclass of women, she was a surrogate for her gay brother and his partner. You know, they don't even speak. I mean, the, it's so broken down. Um, and Gail had, a, you know, her name's Gail. She carried twins for her brother and his partner. And she had a very, very high-risk pregnancy. She almost died. Um, and she delivered quite premature. And, of course, that put the, you know, the twins in jeopardy. But the, the twins survived. And Gail, thankfully, survived. But it's a very broken uh, family now because of, you know, you know, go away now. We have our babies. We have what we want. We don't need you in the picture anymore. It just messes things up. If you were to come to me as a client and tell me you were feeling grumpy, irritable, lethargic, stressed out, or unfocused, I'd want to do a thorough assessment of your lifestyle. And one of the first elements we'd look at is the quality and quantity of your sleep. You need at least a good seven hours of refreshing sleep every night in order to be your best self. There are many things that can get in the way of that. A demanding job, a new baby, or just plain bad habits, for example. But if you're having difficulty falling or staying asleep for the simple reason that you're too hot, you're too cold, or you and your partner don't agree on the temperature, look no further. I have just the thing for you. And since this is not therapy, but a podcast, I can actually sell you stuff. So I'm going to genuinely recommend that you check out the Pod Pro Cover by 8Sleep. It's the most advanced solution on the market for thermoregulation. The cover can adjust the temperature on each side of the bed individually for you and your partner based on your sleep stages, biometrics, and bedroom temperature, reacting intelligently to create the optimal sleeping environment. Personally, I have mine set to run on autopilot so that my bed is warm when I get in, cool in the middle of the night, and warm again when it's time to wake up. I sleep very soundly this way. Improving your sleep is one of the best investments you can possibly make in your overall well-being, the quality of your work, and the lives of the people you touch. So go to 8sleep.com to check out the pod and use the code SOMETHERAPIST at checkout for up to $200 off your purchase. Even if they're already running another sale, this code will get you an additional $50 off. And to my listeners around the world, 8sleep currently ships not only within the USA, but also to Canada, the United Kingdom, select countries in the European Union, and Australia. All right, now back to the show. What disturbs me the most, kind of generally speaking about all this, is the expectation that pregnancy and childbirth are not as deeply, powerfully emotional as they are, um, and that abortion or miscarriage are not impactful. And that's something that you know, I know that you sort of stay out of the abortion debate, but my views on abortion are quite moderate. Um, although no matter how fairly I express my reasonable and commonplace views, I will get attacked from both the left and the right. And, um, you know, the, the criticisms I receive from the left are that if I say anything critical or controversial about abortion, if I indicate that it's anything less than a stellar and easy experience or a no-brainer, then I'm like somehow colluding with people who want to take away all of women's freedoms. And the criticisms I receive from, from the right are that I'm too permissive of abortion. But my view on it is that it's it's a difficult decision. It's a really difficult experience, no matter what. And that it is a it is a physical trauma. And that um, emotionally and spiritually, I think if anyone, when I hear people sort of downplaying the emotional and spiritual effects, I suspect dissociation or repression. 
Um, I don't actually think it's as lighthearted as people treat it. So for me, you know, I think there are plenty of women who could be quite progressive in their values, could be supportive of a woman's right to choose, but the assumption even that a woman who is pro-choice in her political beliefs should therefore always just be okay with, um, you know, ending a life that is growing within her, that that should not be treated as something that is emotionally or spiritually painful as well as physically traumatic, um, just, just really baffles me. Now, you've also talked about the impact on future fertility of surrogacy, of um, buying and selling eggs. And and this is another one of those things that I don't hear people talking enough about. And I'm just going to speculate here, as I warned listeners I would do. You know, I spent so many of my fertile years just being afraid of my fertility. And I think women are sort of taught, you know, we're, we're taught for so many years of our lives beca- because of the delayed age of childbearing compared to, let's say, 100 years ago, we're taught from a young age to be afraid of getting pregnant, right, and and to try to prevent it and all of this. And I think for so long, um, many of us, you know, generally young, healthy women live in this sort of relationship where we're like, uh, just, if I could just put a lid on my fertility, that'd be great. You know, if I could, you know, we want to, we're afraid of it. We want to control it. We want to mitigate it. And then at some point it flips where, um, you know, women in their 30s or 40s who want to get pregnant suddenly realize that this thing that they've um, not only not exactly taken for granted, but this thing they've been afraid of as being too powerful is now maybe not powerful enough. So I, I wonder how, you know, what are, what information are we missing about the impact on our future fertility of birth control abortion, um, buying and selling eggs, surrogacy, all of these things where we're really kind of tampering with normal reproductive functioning in any way. Um, And I I know very little about that. So, and again, I don't expect you to get political with this by any means, but (laughs) what do, what do women not understand about how these things impact our future fertility? Yeah, and for me, I don't usually see this at all through a, a political lens anyway. I think because of my strong background in nursing, I see it through, you know, health and wellness and how our body, you know, biology, how our body works. I think one thing I'm always um, surprised is how little women know about their reproductive bodies. You know, um, you know their cycles and 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 what what's going on in their body at different stages of their monthly cycle and um, and how fragile. I don't think women realize how fragile our fertility is. Human reproduction is very fragile. It's quite miraculous that anybody can even actually you know conceive and have a have a baby because there's so many things that you know so many factors that that are dependent on you know getting this baby at the end. Um, and I do grieve. I mean, there was a great book I read many years ago. It's, I'm looking over on my shelf because it's on my shelf over there called Motherhood Deferred. You know, and it's a story of a, a personal story of one woman who, you know, like you say, she did everything not to get pregnant, you know, um, to avoid pregnancy, to contracept, to do all. And then by the time she was ready, um, you know, she realized that she had deferred her motherhood for so long that her body was not going to cooperate because um, the biological clock is still very much, a, you know, a real phenomenon. Uh, so, 
you know, and then when you enter into the um, the assisted reproductive highway, I call it the super highway of you know assisted reproduction, because now there's this urgency, like, oh, I'm ready for that baby, and I, yeah, I've got to go to the see the specialist, you know, and they bring out the big gun fertility drugs, and they start doing all this, you know, hard hardcore stuff to your body to try to either get you to produce eggs or or you don't have any more eggs and so then they say you have to go to the egg donor you have to go i say poach eggs off of the young healthy woman and get her eggs uh and you know ivf the the one place where you can get a little bit of data because we don't do a really good job of tracking this in the united states so people if you want to be a really good informed person it's hard to get data but the only place that will give you a little glimmer of data is the, the CDC, and they do an annual report on all the fertility agencies in the United States, and they're all required to report. The data is always about three years behind because, you know, we complete a year, then the data is all collected, then the data is all analyzed, and then the data gets put out in a report, so it takes about three years. But overwhelmingly, hundreds of thousands of assisted reproductive IVF cycles are being done in America and maybe 23% of them even end up with a baby, a live birth. So, and, and I've been checking that data and following it for about a decade and it's not moved an inch. So as we've developed, you know, new and improved techniques and new technologies and new ways to make babies through assisted reproductive technology, we're not seeing, you know, the outcome um, really improve. You know, and fertility drugs and all of this is not without harm. It's not without harm. And now that we've been doing it long enough, we're even seeing research coming out that children created through these techniques are not without risk and may be put in a higher risk category for certain certain problems. So okay. but tell, we're learning as more we about go. That. It's, it's a life live experiment, you know, that we're doing on yeah. women and future children, you know. So uh, what do we know currently about the impacts on children created through these means? Well, we know that some children, here, let me start with what we don't know. We don't really know why, right? We don't know why we're seeing children having um, complications. The reason we don't know that is because we can't separate if, if whatever we're seeing is because of the technique, like what we're doing in the laboratory, the actual, you know, human making, or is, and or is it because we're taking a couple who wouldn't otherwise be able to conceive and we're forcing them to conceive? So where, whether you're mother nature, whether it be evolution, whatever, something is wrong, and I hate to use the word wrong because there's nothing wrong with people that can't have children, but there's something that's making them not be able to have a baby, and we're ignoring that. And so we're overriding it through, you know, this forced assisted reproductive technology techniques. So we don't know yet if what we're seeing is because of the technique or the couple or a combination of both. But we are seeing, you know, certain genetic um, illnesses Children created through assisted reproductive technology have higher, you know, uh, genetic illnesses. There's been some noise about um, children consider conceived through assisted reproductive technology and you know cancer risks. Um, I don't think it's founded. I have seen some people making the case that autism 
um, because we've seen so much increase in autism as we've seen so much increase in assisted reproductive technology. But, but I don't think that that's been really, um, in my mind, proven. But I'm not willing to say it's not not something that we should wonder about. Um, so yeah, you know, and and this is all part of the informed consent. It's going to, you know, the average take-home IVF baby in the United States is about six figures. I mean, this is very expensive. It's very expensive, um, high fail, you know, you know, people have either have, you know, economic resources or have a little bit of insurance to cover some of this, but it's very expensive. And, you know, we make, um, and this, you know, got, this is how I got involved in the trans issue because I found out that when children are offered, you know, affirmation therapy, um, they're offered fertility preservation because we know that we're going to destroy their very fragile fertility and destroy their fertile bodies by putting them on cross-sex hormones and, and blocking their puberty and surgically removing. I mean, if you're a woman and you surgically remove your uterus and then one day you're going to want a baby, you're going to have to have a surrogate or you're going to have to be partnered with a woman who has a uterus. Or now trans people want uterine transplants, you know. <laughs> it's so disturbing to me that people that that we have an innate ability to do something for ourselves and that a combination of culture and industry is coming along to really push us in a direction of being reliant on industry and money and technology to do that for us. So this brings up for me the the idea of Chesterton's fence, which I first learned about through Dark Horse podcast, Brett Weinstein and Heather Hying, you know, this idea that, um, and I'm going to butcher the story, I'm sure, but basically two people are walking through the woods and uh, one person finds a fence and they're like, what's this fence doing here? It doesn't look like it's doing anything. Let's get rid of it. And the other says, no, you need to find out exactly what that fence is doing there before you know whether or not you can afford to get rid of it. And it's like when we tamper with nature, Another saying I, that another saying from those two is um, welcome to complex systems, right? Um, you never know what all ripple effects you're creating. And with something that evolved over such a long period of time, I mean, sexual reproduction and organisms evolved way, way, way before even mammals <laughs> and what to speak yeah. of humans. When you tamper with something so fundamental as you know, what happens when a small gamete meets a large gamete and <laughs> like in a natural environment where they evolved to combine together and do their own thing. When when you take that and put it in a laboratory, um, or take any part of that and put it in a laboratory, do you know what all you're affecting? I, I mean, I think we, we don't know, right? And that's what you say when you introduce this topic is we don't know if it's the techniques. We don't know if it's that, you know, maybe we're ignoring an important reason why this couple was having a problem with infertility. Um, mm. But speaking of things that are stranger than fiction, I wanted to pick your brain about <laughs> artificial wombs. Um, yeah. So this video recently made its rounds on the internet going viral uh, about ecto life, the world's first yeah. at least proposed. I don't think it's I don't think it's there yet, but um, demonstrating this very 
sci-fi <laughs> sort of like um I don't know what would you call it like warehouse of baby making machines um and you know when it gets to that point where I see that there is an agenda here on the part mm-hmm. of some like technocrats who would love to just control every aspect of human reproduction um to take it out of our hands completely and make us 100% reliant on this technology um you know for me again coming back to that moral instinct of sanctity it raises really fundamental questions about like what is human life i think you were in a conversation with isabella malvin on her podcast um whose body is it about you know if if a mouse is created through artificial sperm and artificial egg is it still a, a mouse and you said that you would argue that yes and this is where it gets into really tricky territory because I could see people being wildly offended on either side of this question that I'm about to pose, which is if you outsource every aspect of human reproductive technology, if we were to manage to make artificial sperm, artificial eggs, or, or you know, take organic sperm and eggs but do everything in a laboratory and put it in this ecto-life artificial womb – well, now you're taking, again, Chesterton's fence. You're taking away the fence that we we don't know all the reasons that fence is there. We do know some of them. But taking away that most primal human experience of gestating in a womb and being part of a mother, being part of your mother and having that bond, if you take that away, are we still human? And there's a part of me that shudders like I actually don't know. I'm kind of afraid. My moral instincts um, tell me to be afraid of what kind of humanoid creature would develop in that condition because if you're if you have human DNA and and you manage to become a, a viable human life, but you lack an attachment to a mother and you've never known that, are you capable of love? Are you capable of normal human emotional functioning? Or have you at that point become some sort of emotionless cyborg? I don't know. And again, I warn people, I'd be speculating, right, and operating <laughs> from instinct here. But these are the kinds of questions that we're, we're we're living in an era where we have to face them, right? Right, right. Well, and, you know, when I was on Isabella's show, we also talked about the new proposal to use brain-dead women as surrogates, you know, so we could gestate, you know, these babies in a brain-dead woman. You know, I was in graduate school at the time that we cloned Dolly the sheep. You know, so, you know, Dolly the sheep, although she was created through a technique called, you know, cloning, and, you know, you know, we're we're on the on the cusp of cloning human beings. We already have the technology. You know, she was still a sheep. Um, now she had all kinds of problems, which was why she had to be euthanized at a very young age. So she was, you know, injured, compromised, defective, whatever you want to call. Um, and again, why is that? Was it because of the cloning technique? I don't know. You know, you know, we don't even know when we see that there's problems. We don't even know like what is causing those problems. Um, so I, you know, I worry about those issues too, you know, gestating babies, you know, we, we're really close to gestating human beings in artificial wombs, you know, we we're already doing it in animals and have been for quite some time, you know, we're already doing uterine transplants in women, um, we haven't, you know, crossed the 
the Rubicon and, and done the uterine transplants in male bodies. Um, but, you know, I can see that that will be something that will come soon. What will, what will that mean for the children that are produced out of um, artificial wombs, out of you know, uterine transplants in male, male bodies? Um, we had a couple that just recently gave birth to two embryos that had been frozen and abandoned for 20 years and this gave birth to twins. We have no idea what happens to early, tiny, nascent human life when you freeze it for two decades and then implant it and then bring it to life. You know, will these children grow up and have problems 5, 10, 15 years down the road that we can't even imagine? Because I have to imagine that it's not without any kind of consequence to be frozen for 20 years and then thawed out, you know? Um, and it just boggles my mind that there's nobody stopping and raising these kind of really important questions. Not can we do it, but should we do it? And what does that mean to our human nature and our ability to be embodied people that live in community and relate to one another? And like you say, will they be, you know, stilted psychologically? Will they grow up to be, you know, de deviants because they don't, they don't have the capacity to, to care or to feel or to have empathy. I don't know. Um, but, but this is, I often say that the assisted reproductive technology industry is the largest scale human experiment that's just unfolding before our very eyes. And it has, in my mind, no guardrails, no red flags, no stop, wait, we shouldn't do this. Um, and, you know, they're pushing CRISPR, gene editing technology now. So we can go in and chop out genes and knock out the ones that we don't want. And, you know, and, and this was going to take designer babies to a whole nother level when we're starting to build human beings from the, you know, from the tools the, from the ground up. As a therapist, I've gotten an up close and personal view at what people tend to struggle with day in and day out. Turns out, it's almost universal that we know we should be taking better care of ourselves in terms of the basic building blocks of well-being, like diet and exercise. But as valuable as it is for our mental and physical health to change our lifestyle habits, it's also much easier said than done. People often set goals that are too lofty, only to feel even worse about themselves when their aspirations inevitably fail. That's why I recommend starting with positive changes that are as simple as possible. Enter my new favorite beverage line. Organifi makes it so easy to improve your nutrition and start feeling better right now with refreshing plant-based blends of superfoods and adaptogens that you can just mix with water. My personal favorite is their green juice. It contains moringa, ashwagandha, chlorella, spirulina, wheatgrass, beets, turmeric, mint, lemon, and coconut water. 100% organic with no added sugar. And it tastes great. My family loves Organifi Gold, which promotes relaxation and restful sleep, served mixed with warm almond milk before bed. Organifi also makes several other powerful blends, all organic and loaded with vitamins, minerals, antioxidants, phytonutrients, anti-inflammatory herbs, and adaptogens. For less than $3 and 3 grams of sugar per serving, you can start giving yourselves the support they need to manage stress and feel good. Check out their product line at Organifi.com. That's spelled O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I dot com. And use promo code SOMETHERAPIST to get 20% off your entire order. Your whole body will thank you. My mind wants to go in two directions. One is some <laughs> things I've learned from 
my work as a psychotherapist from hearing people's personal experiences intimately. And another is um, one of my favorite books as a child growing up, um, The Giver by Lois Lowery. Um, so I'll, I'll see if I can remember both of those. You know, so my work is of a more, um, you know, right-brained nature, right? As a therapist, I am a healthcare professional in a sense, but I'm not a medical professional. And there are things that are really valid for people's psychological processes that we can't just explain away through science. And I'd be a horrible therapist if I neglected those issues or, or met them with too cold a, and rational an approach. And so as a therapist, I, you know, I've heard personal experiences that, of course, I don't want to give away my patient's stories, but like I heard someone's story who I will just say, um, they had a sibling in the womb that um, the mother miscarried and they were never told this growing up, but they kept mm -hmm. asking for the first several years of life, where's my brother, where's my brother, where's my brother? So I remember that experience, right? And that person always feeling like there was someone missing and mm -hmm. only found out like years later about the miscarriage. Um, I've also heard story of um, someone who was adopted at birth who has um, a recollection of that first experience, the most primal experience being being ripped away from mother. And it didn't matter how loving the adopted family was. They were not mom. Like, I'm baby. I'm coming out of the womb. Where's mom? Right? And that laying the psychological foundation for life. And as a therapist, when, you know, I, I, I get the, the honor of witnessing how deeply impactful these sort of things are at this really sort of primordial level of how of our psychological organization um i'm ju i'm just going to sort of leave that there and and, and talk about um the giver ha did you read that book the giver by lower slower i you know what i raised four children and i read it many many years ago it was it but was I'm, one of my I'm, favorite I'm, books I'm yeah. so um you know, I'm, I'm uh, as Eliza Schlesinger would say, I'm an elder millennial. So I think people of my generation probably remember this book. I think I read it in fourth grade. It was one of my first sort of um, novels mm. that I read. And it depicts a futuristic world in which people have managed to more or less eliminate suffering. Um, and they've done this by creating this sort of very organized utopian society where um, – Everything is um, very structured. There are family units. Every family unit consists of, um, you know, two parents and two children, but all the reproduction is outsourced to what they call mothers. And mothers are the birthing people who are basically chosen in this society as like young women who are physically healthy, but not that smart. Um, mm -hmm. Because in this society, at, at um, I think it's like the age of 12 or so, um, a child has been watched by the adults in the society for their whole life. And the adults start to notice what kind of proclivities or talents they have. And then they sort of pick a career path that they assign to that child. And so, mm. you know, you could go into nursing mm -hmm. or teaching or engineering or any of these things, but the adults are like, okay, we now welcome you into the beginning, the beginning of your apprenticeship in this um, role. And, you know, to be selected as a mother in this society is basically for the adults to say, you're not that special, actually. We're just gonna, we're just gonna make you a bio, you know, your value is in your biology. Um, 
But as part of how they eliminated suffering, they eliminated reproduction, right? They outsourced it um, and Mm -hmm. um, put it in in labs and sort of brush it off to the side uh, where it's sort of a shameful thing to do. Um, They also eliminated color and they eliminated um, many uh, of the, the memories of human history. And so the story of the giver is essentially the story of this one boy who's selected for the most rare job in the society, which is the recipient of the memories of what human life was like before they eliminated suffering. And he alone can see in color. Um, He alone can know what it feels like to be caught out in the cold shivering, but also Mm -hmm. he alone has the memory of what snow was like and what love and lust was like. So for everyone else, um, part of the ritual of of this society is that when children, who of course are grown separately by the mothers, are assigned to their parents, they're growing up, part of their sort of daily ritual is the parents ask, did you have any dreams last night? And when the children have start having certain types of dreams that indicate basically the beginning of puberty, basically the, the awakening of their erotic potential, but also the awakening of a deeper, richer fantasy life and a sense of human emotion. Um, When the kids start having those dreams, that's when the parents start giving them these pills. And these pills essentially repress their sexuality, but also repress other elements of their humanity. And um, I, I forget what all really gets cut off by these pills, but they basically stop people from feeling. So here they have this very peaceful sort of utopian society but it's lacking in color, it's lacking in richness, it's lacking in all the things that Mm. make us human. And so this book, I I love it, it's so deep and it's like a fourth grade level, but it's still with me to this day because it explores the ethics of like, would you wanna live in a world where we got rid of suffering? Where the things that you most hate about your life, you no longer have to struggle with. There's no war, there's no pollution, there's no crime, there's no heartbreak. There's no death in childbirth, Um, but at the same time, there's no real love. There's no real attachment. There's no real sacrifice. Yeah. Yeah, and those kind of questions are, you know, sort of bleed into the whole transhumanist, you know, living forever and overcoming our immortality. And what does it mean to enjoy life when it just is, it's like Groundhog's Day. It's just another day. I mean, we don't ever get old. We don't ever, you know, get weak. We don't ever get sick. We don't ever die. And what does that mean for um, just our, you know, our human interactions? I mean, would people get married if you know that for the rest of your life, really till death do us part, you're going to be married for a hundred years? <laughs> you know, so I think it just raises profound questions when we try to mute um, or block really important um, emotions like pain and sadness and suffering. I mean, those are the things that I think build character and, and, and make the fabric of our life real and colorful and interesting. So mm. I, I remember reading a similar kind of book. It was a, it was a book called Never Let Me Go by uh, Isagura Kazua, if I'm saying his name right. And it was about these children that were raised in this idyllic, beautiful, you know, English school, countryside, and all day long they got to paint and do art. And then they, through a series of events, they found out, they discovered that they were just 
had been created to be the clones for when somebody on the outside world got sick and needed a body part. And so, you know, they realized that they were just, you know, a means to somebody's ends and that their, what they thought was such a wonderful, charmed life was in fact, you know, a nightmare. <laughs> and then the minute they got called up because the rich person who had cloned them and was paying for them to, you know, live in this school needed them, then their life was over. Um, so. Speaking of body parts, um, <laughs> in your conversation with Isabella Melvin, yeah. She asked you a question that's actually been on my mind. Um, I guess she said someone contacted her on Instagram with this question, but I posted on Twitter similar questions and some people said, yep, this is exactly the sort of question we should be asking. And some other people said, you're a crazy conspiracy theorist. Um, <laughs> and and my questions that I'm asking as, you know, the famous, you know, the I'm the archetype of the conspiracy theorist now that says, what? I'm just asking questions, but I am just asking questions. And it's apparently a question that's on a lot of people's mind right now, which is what is happening to all that extra tissue, right? I, I know... Um, You've said that there are, like, I guess at this point, like millions of these reproductive gametes and these embryos being stored in places. I know there's a connection here with stem cell research and technologies. And then there are some questions about, um, you know, with the uh, trans trend, what is happening to all the healthy body parts that are being removed from people because we never had a time in history that this many healthy bodily tissues were being removed from people. Um, you know, generally speaking, you know, if you look at 20 years ago, whose breasts were being removed? Cancer patients. They, they were typically older women um, with unhealthy breast tissue that needed to be removed. So now we're taking all these, you know, girls just, you know, a few years into puberty, removing their breasts very healthy, young, viable breast tissue. Um, and other, obviously, other body parts are being removed from people as well. And the thing that really got me into hot water on the internet where I got called a conspiracy theorist was where I sort of drew a connection. And I think actually it was um, Jennifer Bilek who drew this connection. And I was just sort of speculating mm -hmm. about what is she on to, which is um, – and I know like when you say Bill Gates that you sound like a conspiracy theorist, but I guess like Bill <laughs> Gates is um, like trying to develop um, artificial breast milk in a lab. Um, and again, it's one of these things that's posed as being like good for humanity, right? Because there's a, there's a shortage of baby formula and some women can't breastfeed or, you know, so I'm thinking, okay, so there's a lab making artificial breast milk. Like how do you synthesize breast milk, is that something that you need breast tissue to create? And I started picturing some really kind of horrific and grotesque things about what these labs might actually be doing. And like, so I certainly don't mean to pull you into guilt by association and, and throw you <laughs> under the bus and get you called a conspiracy theorist for just talking to me about these questions. But you did say when you talked to Isabella Melbourne that that was something you thought you might research a little further. And I was just curious if there is anything you've come across around these like bizarre connections that could be happening between these sort of transhuman technologies that people are developing and the the healthy bodily tissues that are being removed from uh, healthy young people. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I actually was on her show so recently that I haven't had time to, to do my research and to dig around. But I, you know, what I did say on her show was I could imagine that, um, you know, that this 
tissue that's being removed or organs. I mean, we're taking out, you know, uteruses from women who are having, you know, the bottom surgery. They don't want a uterus anymore because they're going to, you know, live their life as a, as a man, supposedly. Um, you know, I can imagine that uteruses could be used for uterine transplants. Um, but as far as breast tissue and, you know, the removal of penises and, and testicles, I just don't know. I know in the area of reproductive technology, frozen eggs, frozen sperm, and frozen embryos are um, not in any way, shape, or form accounted for, you know, in any meaningful, serious way where we know when these eggs come out of this woman's body or these the sperm comes out of this man's body and embryos are made and they go in that person's body. You know, the paper trail is just, it's, it's impossible. I remember early on in, in my career and, and researching this area of assisted reproductive technology that the Los Angeles Times literally ran like two pages of ads because they had a um, an big lab error. And they were basically saying, if your donor number is, and this list of donor numbers, please contact us because we might have you know misplaced your you know egg or embryos or something. It was so ridiculous that... that, that um, and and I know that you know once you know embryos are abandoned, eggs are abandoned. If sperm, you know, it doesn't all get used. So does it go to the researchers for CRISPR technology, for cloning technology, for the developments of embryonic stem stem cell lines to work on research? I just don't know in the trans surgery space what's happening to healthy breasts that are being removed you know, or like I said, uterus, I can see that uterine uteruses would be kind of up there for uterine transplant patients, people wanting to have a transplant. We're not playing, we're not putting them in men yet. We're putting them in women who for many reasons, you know, they're, they can't carry a pregnancy to term. But as you have said, those surgery, uh, the, the procedures to get a uterine transplant involve like, you have to have a cesarean to get it in a cesarean to get the baby out, then a cesarean to remove the, and, and you have to take anti-rejection drugs the whole time because I don't know how people think you can just like mix and match body parts like Legos. The body is such a, a fascinatingly complex organism and it works together uh, synthesizing as a whole. Um, yes. Yes. It's it, like, it's so many levels of human experimentation. And maybe I've got my tinfoil hat on, but I'm thinking like, this is like Frankenstein stuff. Mary Shelley would be like, oh, I need there. to write another book. <laughs> it really feels like that's where we're at. And that's why I say like, without being an expert, I'm not a doctor. I haven't studied the science of these things, but as a citizen, um, we have to have some, we have to allow our moral instincts to guide us. And that's where my instinct of sanctity uh, really yeah. kicks in and says, you know, that the human body is sacred and there are certain things that you just don't mess with. And like you said, just because we can doesn't mean we should. And it seems like we're really no. kind of letting mad scientists have their heyday and not taking into account that there are certain people who have um, a more sort of sociopathic bent, including, you know, sort of the so-called benevolent sociopath of 
you know, like mm-hmm. I can't remember the name of that guy who like dis- was he was like a brain researcher and discovered that he himself had the brain of a sociopath, but he was a benevolent sociopath, you know, but like but he channeled that <laughs> into but you know, like I, I mean there are certain people who and my my personal philosophy on this is that we need butchers, we need surgeons, we need people who can go into war. Basically, we need people who are quite insensitive when it comes to disgust, fear, and these other emotions and moral instincts that can stop us, stop ordinary people from doing things. Like someone's gotta, someone's gotta take these jobs. I mean, vegans would argue that we shouldn't have butchers, but I'm not a vegan. I actually uh, <laughs> tried that; it didn't work for me. I need me, and I'm glad someone has the heart and the guts to you know, and the brain for that type of work. So from an evolutionary standpoint, you know, it does, theoretically, it can benefit all of society to have a few people who, um, you know, if you channel those people appropriately into professions where they can help the rest of us. But there are also people who um, are more sick and twisted and they just want to be the first to do these crazy things just to prove what they can do. I I feel like everything we know about John Money tells us that he was one of those, Mm -hmm. like, oh, I want to be the first to, you know, prove that sex is all made up and you can raise a boy like a girl. And and it was a horrible failure. Um, We're not going to get into the John Money story in this episode. You can definitely, there's a million (laughs) places you can learn about what happened there. I hope you've been enjoying this episode of You Must Be Some Kind of Therapist podcast. If you like what you're hearing, now's a great time to like, subscribe, follow, rate, review, or share. You can also support the podcast by visiting sometherapist.com shop, where you will find goods and services I have personally curated to support your well-being and enrich your life. We're just building the shop, so check back periodically and feel free to suggest recommendations. All right, now back to the show. I want to actually change direction and talk about a couple of other things. One is before we go on much longer um, to make sure people know about the event coming up very soon in Austin, put on by Partners for Ethical Care called It's Bigger Than Texas. So basically there's going to be a really great panel in Texas, Austin, Texas on April 20th. Um, Jennifer Law will be up there with my friend Amy Sousa, who I believe was on episode nine of my podcast. Um, Candace Jackson, who's a lawyer that's been working on this issue. Um, it's going to be hosted, uh, moderated by Isabella Melvin. So lots of great people on that panel. Um, and then the next day we're doing an event. I will be there, so I won't be on the panel, but, um, I will be in Austin for this event. And the next day, uh, with, um, Panacall Productions, we are putting on a film screening of our film, Affirmation Generation, and Jennifer's film, The Detransition Diaries. So, um, if you can make it over to Austin for April 20th, April 21st, please join us. All the information is on Partners for Ethical Care's website at partnersforethicalcare.com. Just wanted to make sure that we put in a plug for that. Was there anything else you wanted to say about that event? Yeah, no, I'm just excited. I was just in Dallas last week at another event on on transgenderism. So it's going to be great to be back in Texas again so soon. Um, So I'm looking forward to it. All right. So now I wanted to move over to our questions for you from my locals community. So for listeners who aren't familiar, although at this point, I think I have the announcement set to the beginning of the podcast, so you should all be aware that I did just recently start a community at locals.com. It's at some kind of therapist, 
www.locals.com. Locals is set up as sort of the ideal infrastructure for someone like me where, um, you know, I've got several thousand people at this point um, following my work and I get a lot of outreach, more more outreach than I can keep up with through things like emails and DMs. And so I really created this local locals community as um, a filter um, to protect my sanity so that I don't spend all day every day just typing messages at strangers on a screen for free. Um, but it's only $8 a month to join. You can get your first month free with promo code grandfather. And this community is really just getting started. But some of the perks of joining this community are that if you have a question for me, um, you can post it in one of my ongoing threads where I collect questions for the next live stream. And once there's enough questions, I will do a private members only exclusive live stream Q&A and I will answer answer your questions on a video. You can tune in to the live stream if you're a member, or you can watch it after the fact. So that's one of the perks I'm offering. And another one of the perks I'm offering is I'm letting my locals um, members know who my upcoming podcast guests are and giving you the chance to ask questions. And so far, I want to give a shout out to Christo. Christo has been awesome at helping get things going on locals because it does take a while to build a community, to encourage people to migrate over there. It takes a while to get the discussion going, but Christo has given some excellent questions so far for my first live stream and, and for my guests. And so today's question comes courtesy of Christo. Thank you, Christo. <laughs> and he has a question for you, Jennifer. So his question for you is, Jennifer, if you were to describe the gender ideology movement in terms of archetypes, what images come to your mind? And how might thinking in terms of archetypal patterns help us understand and effectively respond to the movement? For me, the first two archetypes that come to mind are first, the victim, and second, victim turned into bully. What comes to mind for you? Oh, I, I think I think of a more like abuse and, you know, Mengele kind of, you know, experimentation and harm. Um, that's a tough question. But yeah, I, I immediately, I, and I think it's because my lens is such a strong medical ethics that we are, we are abusing and we are harming and we are experimenting um, knowingly that, that, that what we're doing is, is detrimental to these young people's, you know, life and well-being. Yeah, so I don't see the, I don't see the bullying so much. I just see the, I guess, evil, this evil, evil experiment, mad scientist. Yeah, but a man—he's mad because he's evil. You know, it's an—it's not a—it's not a like I'm not like a person who's who's mad like crazy pathologically. You know, they can't help themselves; they got schizophrenia. But it's it's an evil evil motivated madness. Well, yeah, and it's this like a possession with the glee of playing God, and. And, you know, something that's been on my mind a lot is sanity. What is it to be sane? Um, and I could be wrong. Linguists, feel free to gently, politely correct <laughs> me on this in the YouTube comments. Um, but, um, you know, I believe that sanity comes from the same root word as, um, like, sana in Spanish means cleanliness, right? And then we have yeah, the word sanitary, right? Uh -huh. Um and uh, and it's not too far from sanctity. I'm not sure if those are connected, if, if you really look into like sort of the linguistic origins of those words. But um, I do think there's a connection between sanity and sanctity. And, you know, not everything um, 
not everything that's not blatantly insane would necessarily qualify to my mind as being sane. I feel like there's a lot of middle ground, a lot of gray area between like what I would classify as truly sane, sane sanity as an as a virtue, as the presence of sanity, right? Rather than just the absence of insanity. There's like sanity itself. And then there's a long way to go before you really reach the outer limit so that where you could truly call that insanity. But I've been thinking yeah. about what is sanity. And and that's where I think we have to have some sort of moral guiding principles. Like, and and there are things that I think you and I would agree on that most people 20 years ago would agree on that, you know, growing up, I sort of took for granted that most people agreed on uh, that are now being called into question about, you know, what, what we should and shouldn't do. Um, and so when you talk about the mad scientist and you say not mad as in insane, um, well, it's, it's not sane though, right? It's not, maybe, maybe it's not insane as in not psychotic, not like, um, hallucinating or not delusional, although you could say there are delusions of grandeur yeah. playing God, yeah. right? But, but there's missing a quality of sanity, a quality of being of sound mind, of a virtuous and clean and clear sound mind to be able to think things through mm-hmm. where, um, where one's ethics are integrated into their thought process. Yeah. I have to, th- that's a tough, that's a tough question you threw at me. Christo's you know, question? Like the, yeah. yeah, like the images that come to mind and, mm-hmm. but, but I just, uh, I just get undone when I see doctors doing things that are, are, are wrong and harmful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and like, and this is where I find, um, Again, like circling back to Jonathan Jonathan Haidt's work, I find it so valuable because um, he he poses questions uh, such as, for example, if um, two siblings want to have sex and there's no STDs and there's no pregnancy, there's appropriate contraceptives or whatever, um, how is that wrong, right? And mm-hmm. as well as for people who eat meat, would you eat a dog? I mean, they do in other parts of the world, right? But like as Americans in a, in a dog-loving culture, it violates our moral instinct to feel like, well, no, you don't, you just don't eat dogs because dogs, they're like family, right? Um, and so mm-hmm. all these questions, and I, w- I would certainly recommend um, reading his book, The Righteous Mind, or going to yourmorals.org, where um, mm-hmm. there's some great mm-hmm. sort of quizzes to help mm-hmm. people reflect on their own morality. I do think that these kind of questions guide sanity. And and I think maybe because we live in the era of the mad scientists, people are so like, I think there's kind of this mentality of no limits where like, if something is scientifically plausible, why shouldn't we have the freedom to do it? And it's like, you can't necessarily always just give a rational answer for that. You have to have, some guiding moral instinct, but I think I'm just here to to say that maybe that's okay. Like maybe it's okay to have an emotional or spiritual limit to what you're willing to accept. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And ethics is always about drawing lines and, you know, whether it be a fence 
that has a purpose there. You know, if you cross that fence, you're going to be harmed or do something. But yeah, I mean, so it's, and, and that's where we can agree. Where do we draw those lines? Um, and to me, I, I like knowing where the boundaries are. And I like the, and I like the brighter, the brighter the line, the better. Um, Cause then it's very clear versus we live in all this ambu- ambiguous ambiguity, gray zones. Can we, well, we, we have the technology, should we? Um, so, you know, I spend way too much of my time thinking about that. You know, what, what is the good? How do we know it? And how do we explain what we believe to be good to others so that they kind of go, yeah, I, 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 I get that. I agree with that versus what, what we find ourselves in today. No, we're, you know, we have this radical autonomy. It's my body. It's my choice. I can do whatever I want. If I want to chop off my breasts and have a phalloplasty, you know, that's going to make me feel better. I have the money. We have the, we have the technology. Um, so we have a, we have a, you know, conflict in today's culture because we don't agree on the lines. And we don't agree what's good and, and what's, and how do we know that it's good and it's good meaning it's right. And part of living, living with limits is, um, you know, accepting that these are really difficult decisions, right? That, that we can't just mm-hmm. allow freedom and possibility to be our guiding values with everything. I mean, as exhilarating as it is to have a sense of like, venturing off into the frontier and anything being possible, um, there are there are real limits and consequences to everything. And I, I wonder if part of what's standing in the way of of our accepting that as a culture is our te- our our tendency to deal very poorly with grief. Like mm-hmm. I think our culture doesn't deal well with limits or with grief or with death, really. We like push death away. Mm-hmm. We don't, um, we push aging away. I mean, like, look at what's happened to Madonna, for example. Um, and, and it's, and, and so there's this whole side of life, which is death and dying and aging and limitation, um, sort of archetypally, actually, since Christo asked about archetypes, sort of the archetype of Saturn, um, the, the sort of, um, the figure of the the old man, the wisdom and and the limitation. Um, so I think that that culturally we have a lot of resistance to dealing with those things that are that are such a part of life that are heavy but that make it meaningful. Um, and by the way, there's a beautiful song that honors this archetype. It's called Saturn by Sleeping at Last, one of my favorite musical artists. Um, and and I think that. Um, you know, like the fertility question is so hard because who, it's like, who are any of us? Who am I? Who are you to tell a couple that is struggling with infertility that really wants a baby? Like, sorry, no, you can't have one. Just because your body is saying no, your body isn't doing this. And, mm-hmm. you know, we think that you should accept the limits of your body and what your body is telling you rather than try to force it through artificial means. Um, who is any of us to say that when someone really, really wants something? I mean, that's a great question. But at the same time, is there is is the the desire to keep trying and keep pushing nature's limits? Is that really all just a very complicated way of avoiding 
grief. And I would say the same thing with transgenderism that I've, I've called it sort of grass is greenerism, you know, and I've raised this question with the parents that I work with. I've asked like, for example, you get the sense as a parent that it's more important to your son to be a girl or to not be a boy. And usually when I pose this question, it's like, oh, to not be a boy or to not be a girl, to not be whatever they are, because there's, there's a sense of suffering that someone associates with the limits of their body and the limits of their sex and the social conditioning around that. And they imagine that they would be freer, right? They, they, when they look to what it is to be the opposite sex, they imagine that they would be free all the, of all the problems that they associate with being their own sex. And again, there's this unwillingness to confront the fact that, that we have physical limits and that no matter where you go, you can't escape suffering. You know, even no. if a boy could truly turn into a girl, which he cannot, but even if he could, yeah. there'd still be a whole new set of problems because girls have their issues. And the same thing for girls. You know, girls want the freedom from the constraints of being female. Um, sadly, many of those constraints are social or are cultural, and, and we could deal with that in much less invasive ways. No. Um, but there's there's an unwillingness to recognize that there's constraints no matter what, and that males have their own form of suffering. But in, in that unwillingness to face the constraint, we're also lacking empathy, right? Because if I'm a girl who wants to be a boy who fantasizes that the grass is greener, then I'm actually lacking empathy for the true experience of my male peers because it does come with its own share of problems. And I think my problems are the worst, which is where it kind of comes back to what Krista was saying about the archetype of the victim and the victim played bully. And that is that that's a common expression of narcissism in our culture right now is sort mm -hmm. of the self-absorbed victim. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you ever see the documentary Unnatural Selection? It's about CRISPR. I didn't. I didn't see oh, it's that. It's so good. I'm just going to recommend that film. People go and watch it. So, And recommend your film. So um, let's circle back to where people can find you. So on YouTube, they can find all of your films either in full or, or the trailers for them at the Center for Bioethics and Culture Network. Um, where else yeah. can um, people find you in your work, Jennifer? Yeah, I'm pretty active on Twitter, just at Jennifer Law is my Twitter handle. Um, so people can follow me there. And, you know, they can, if they want more information, they can get on our email list, um, which is our website, cbc-network.org. So sign up if you want one email a, a week. We don't spam people. <laughs> okay. And um, did you say there was a book that you put together yeah the detransition diaries is coming out as a book um in the fall of this year the manuscript awesome. is submitted we're working with the editor now um but yes the other book that i've already done which is out is called broken bonds surrogate mothers speak out and okay. that is um put out through spin effects press but you can buy it on amazon so great well i'll have to include that in my bookshop and um in the links below the show notes um, so thank you so much, Jennifer. It's It's been a pleasure having you. Yeah, thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode of You Must Be Some Kind of Therapist podcast with Stephanie Wynn, LMFT. This podcast is produced by Eric and Amber Beals at Different Mix. Special thanks to the talented musician Joey Pecorero for our theme song, Half Awake. 
At sometherapist.com, you can find more information on any topic, guest, resource, product, or service you've heard of here today. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram at sometherapist. If you would like to ask a question, suggest a topic, be a guest, or invite me to speak, you can email us at hello at sometherapist.com. You can also send us a voice memo with your question, and we just might play it. Of course, just because I'm some therapist doesn't mean I'm your therapist. This podcast is not a substitute for medical advice. If you need help, ask your doctor or browse your local therapists online. And whatever you do next, please take care of yourself. Eat well, sleep well, move your body, get outside, and tell someone you love them. You're worth it.